Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Root for Each Other, a Branches podcast. Um, I am Shannon, and I am here with my dear colleague, Sarah. Hi. Um, Today, we're so excited to kick off another uh, book episode of our podcast, um, affectionately called Read for Each Other. And uh, for the past three months, we've been reading the same book, The Gay Revolution, The Story of the Struggle by Lillian Faderman. And um, I think we all have such um, important things to say about this book. We're really excited to get this conversation started. Before we do that, we want to introduce a very, very special guest that we have with us today. We're so excited to have him with us. Um, Today we have with us Trey Goldeisen. He is our colleague from across the state. Um, He is the Domestic Violence Specialist for the Eastern Panhandle Empowerment Center, also called EPIC. And um, thanks so much for being on the podcast today with us, Trey. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. Um, I read this book uh, back in 2020 when everything was entirely shut down. (laughs) Um, And uh, I read it with my entire, with the entire staff of my agency, EPIC, um, and it was so enlightening and so inspiring. So I'm very excited to revisit and be able to talk about it with you all. Yeah, it's so cool. We're reading it with our staff right now. You all are the furthest Eastern program. We're the furthest Western program. Just reaching out across the state. Always so happy to talk to you. Absolutely. That's awesome. Panhandle to panhandle. That's right. (laughs) Um, I think also one reason that we love having you on the podcast with us is that it's so important to us. And and we know that it's important to you guys too, that we make the connection between why anti-oppression work is so important, not just within our agency, but it is work that is being done all across the state. And I know that you and and your folks over there at Epic are are working just as hard to make that connection with folks. Absolutely. Um, You know, we had a whole pride month just in our agency. We did a pride spirit week. We put pronoun signs on our door. Um, We did a lot of social media, um, just defining pronouns and talking about, you know, some of the history and we did a lot of uh, sidewalk writing outside of all our offices to kind of like show our support. Um, we partnered with different agency or with uh, different like restaurants and stuff. Like we would go and take pictures and then we would like post them on Facebook and be like, look, they're, you know, they're also supporting. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, so we definitely have, um, we d- do a lot that we, uh, we do as much as we can to try to show that we are a safe place for anyone who um whatever gender identity whatever sexual orientation you know um whoever you know we're open come come knock on our door come ring our doorbell we're here to help i love that yeah it's so cool and it's so nice to have uh partners that get it and you know it's really important to us to show that all oppression is connected and that this work is a part of the movement against domestic and sexual violence. So absolutely, we love you guys. So glad to partner <laughs> up here. And I, and I think, and I think one of the things that um, is also really important, I think you kind of touched on it right there is that, um, you know, all of us are connected in trying to fight oppression, but all oppression is connected and we might be on complete opposite sides of the state, but we're, 
Yeah, and we and we have very different cultures. You know, where you all are versus where I am is a very different looking place. Yes. Uh, you know, where where we are on the Eastern Panhandle, most people um, like to say, "Oh, we're we're you know we're this county, or we're in Maryland, or we're near DC." Like people don't even like to tend to like to say that they're from West Virginia. <laughs> the areas around yep. here, um, but they are. Uh, yeah. We are still in West Virginia here. Um, and so it definitely looks a lot different than a lot of other parts of the state, but the oppression is still the same and it's still the same mm-hmm. no matter where you go in the country. Yeah. So I think it's really important to see how like the oppression is connected and the oppression is the same, but we are all also here connected and fighting. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point that you made. I really love that. I want to build on what you're saying, Trey, because, um, I, I don't, I know that we don't know each other very well, but my background is actually in like community impact and collective impact. And one of the things that I used to say all the time is that you have to remember that when you're addressing a societal issue, you're actually addressing a constellation of societal issues that are all connected. And if you want to solve a multi-tiered problem, you have to come up with a multi-tiered solution. And I think that this is a really great step in that direction, just partnerships like this, being able to talk about our differences, but also the things that unite us in the work that we're doing. Um, I also wanted to take a minute to say, um, you guys have your own podcast over there. So take a minute to shout that out. Yes, we do. Um, Our podcast uh, is called The Epic Echo. Um, It's available on Spotify. um, And it's also available directly from our website. Uh, If you go onto our website, which is, um, you you just Google uh, Eastern Panhandle Empowerment Center, and it should be like the first thing you see. Um, uh, and we have links to it on there as well. Um, as I said, it's called the Epic Echo and it is run and created and edited and posted and hosted by our very own Nora Fraser. She's amazing at it. She does such a good job and she does such good work. Check it out. Um, we did two episodes for pride. Um, so if you want to check those out, I'm part of both of those, not saying that that's, you know, going (laughs) to influence anyone to go. That's enough for me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you like my voice on this podcast and you want to hear me talk some more about gay <laughs> stuff, then like, go check it out. <laughs> um, but she also actually just put out an episode, the most recent episode, um, which I um, kind of stole a little bit from when I said panhandle to panhandle, because that I believe that was the title of the episode, where she actually discusses community engagement with Rosemary Ketchum. So yeah, that was a really amazing episode and I would definitely recommend checking that one out. If if you don't check out any others, check that one out because it's really amazing. It's great. I'm a proud subscriber. She, she is (laughs) professional and it's, it's fantastic. We're very jealous of the Rosemary (laughs) Ketchum. Oh yeah. We're, we're jelly to our boots on that one. She's, she's a wonderful human and just a great podcast guest. So she was fantastic. And so she was so approachable and so kind and so welcoming mm-hmm. it was like of course like I, I like when when we first reached out she was like of course i'd love to do it <laughs> and so it was definitely just uh, yeah anyway we could talk about rosemary this, <laughs> and, and i would be fine with it but anyway the rosemary stan episode <laughs> rosemary stan episode 100 <laughs> percent. 
It's actually just a recap of the interview in the other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, then they talked about this, and then Rosemary said this, and I thought it was really great. <laughs> this is how it made me feel. <laughs> I want to take a minute to just kind of introduce some things about this book that I think are really important. When If you are a reader and you are out there looking for something to pick up, this might not be the first thing you turn to because it is a hefty book. We did take the whole summer to read it, but... I don't want anyone to be intimidated by this. I, I said this um, at dinner the other night, and I want to I wanna just reiterate it. I believe from the bottom of my heart that this is a necessary book. Um, it, I would teach this book. It should be required reading for everyone, in my opinion. Um, so yes. I, that is what kind of leads me to our first question that I want to talk about with each of you today, which is, why is this an important book for our time? When we discussed me being on this podcast episode, you know, you all sent me that kind of list of like, these are some questions that we might want to answer and, and kind of talk about a little bit. Like, this is some information that we might want to go over at some point. This was the question that I spent the most time on because I was like, how do I answer this question? Like, how do we even begin to answer this question? And it wasn't because I couldn't think of something. It was because I thought of too many things. Mm -hmm. I was like, mm -hmm. well, can I just like somehow highlight every word in the book and then somehow put it on the podcast, even though you can't see it? <laughs> how about we just spend the episode? I'll just read the book. <laughs> We'll be here for a while, but like, I think that that would be the best way to answer this question. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is an audio book. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is not no longer a podcast. This is the recording of the audiobook that we're all planning yes. on doing for um, Lillian Faberman's The Gay Revolution. <laughs> uh, so what you're saying is go read this book. Go all read this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to really kind of get into the, the uh, nitty gritty of it is this book details a lot of information about the history of the LGBTQ plus movement. And we don't learn about that. I mean, as a person who, and, and, and I just want to preface uh, this by saying, um, I'm going to be using the word queer while we're talking because I identify as a queer person. Mm -hmm. um, that identity is something that is valid that people have, but that word has been used to be oppressive in the past and continues to be used at times to be oppressive. So just kind of a forewarning. Mm -hmm. If you're going to use that word and you don't identify as that word, probably a good idea to make sure that the person you're talking to identifies that way mm -hmm. before using it. Just kind of my little PSA. <laughs> Um, but I do identify as a queer person, so I will be using that word during this podcast because I'm talking about my own identity and the identity of a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll hear me interchangeably say the LGBTQ plus community and the queer community. Now that I've got my PSA out of the way, I wanted to talk about the fact that we aren't taught our history. One of the things that Nora and I did touch on a lot in our podcast episodes um, for the Epic Echo um, was the fact that you know, growing up as a queer person, as a transgender person, as a lesbian person, as a bisexual person, you know, you're not taught your history. You're not taught where you began. You're not taught the different steps that the fight took. At most, and hopefully this has changed in schools at this point, but at most when I was growing up, I learned that AIDS started with gay men. 
And that was pretty much it. I didn't know what Stonewall was until I got to college. And then I joined a, a, an LGBTQ plus advocacy group in college and we started talking about it. So I think what's so important about this book is it lays so much information out. Yes. All in one place. And it makes it so much easier because it is daunting to think about how much history there is mm-hmm. and to even know where to begin. So for me, I'm like, okay, do I, like, what year do I even start? How far back do I go? Where, right. like, who are the people that I need to look at? So I think that's what makes me have such a love for this book anyway, is that it does lay all of it out in one place. And it doesn't just give you hit a history lesson. It talks about people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say the, the LGBTQ plus community had this going on. It says this specific person. Mm-hmm. And it starts that way. And I think yeah. that was so brilliant in this book because it starts talking about individual people mm-hmm. who have had experiences in the way that the queer community was being targeted at this time. That was the first thing that struck me too, is this book does such a good job of bringing you into actual human stories. And, you know, Trey, you were talking about, this is history that we were never taught in school. And I hope that that changes, but this can do a lot to kind of make up that ground. You know, I think, Part of the tragedy is that marginalized communities couldn't be out and celebrate their history. Um, You know, we're getting to a place where we hope that we're creating more safe spaces. And this book does such a good job of of bringing out those human stories and um, making up some of that ground. Yeah. And I I want to talk about kind of in general, the idea of this book as a historical chronicle. Um, that approaches history from a lens of like people are history. It um, for me, history is the excavation of of what we've missed, what we what we what still needs to be uncovered. And because there has been, and I I think I'm pretty safe in saying that this book is kind of unprecedented. I've never seen such a comprehensive collection of LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. history, um, but. I really love the idea of history as excavation, where we're uncovering and um, unquieting the voices that have been silenced from our past. And, and I think that that approach is just, it's exactly what we need. I agree wholeheartedly. And, and I love, and I, and I think the best way to put it, um, and I was actually just like kind of briefly looking it up, talking about stories. Viola Davis, who I, we were talking about standing for people. Oh, love gosh Um, she is just so incredible but anyway (laughs) we could go on about her too Um, but she put it perfectly i think when she did an acceptance speech for best supporting actress in the movie fences Mm. he said there's one place that all the people with the greatest potential are gathered one place and that's the graveyard people ask me all the time what kind of stories do you want to tell viola and i say exhume those bodies exhume those stories the stories of the people who dreamed big and never saw those dreams to fruition people who fell in love and lost Mm -hmm. yes and i think that's such an incredible parallel to what little 
William Faderman did in this book because I didn't know any of these people. Mm-hmm. And to read their stories, I cannot tell you how many times I cried while I was in the middle of reading this book. I would be in the middle, like reading this book in my uh-huh. office and just be tears running down my face and be like, I'm still at work. If a client walks in right now, I might need to help. Them. I'm a mess. So I'm gonna need to take a break. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. it is so powerful. And and she does such a great job at exhuming those bodies and those stories to tell these stories that aren't being told. I I could not agree with that more. I I think that one of the things that you really should prepare a reader for when they tackle this book is the emotionality of it. Like there are moments in this book that I was enraged, like livid, like off my rocker livid about some of the stories that we're hearing. And and I think that that's powerful and, and it needs to be, history needs to happen in that way. Yeah, this book, it, it does. It will give you an emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. You will be angry at times. You will be devastated at times. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to get through because of that. But at the same time, you don't want to put it down. Mm-hmm. And I want to just say another emotion that I kept feeling was just like mourning the loss. There are so many examples of where really smart, intelligent people with so much potential, in, like in the Viola Davis quote, mm-hmm. are are robbed of their contribution to society. They're robbed of their gifts and their skills. And, and I just, I mourn that loss. What, what could we be doing right now? What could we be fixing if we had gotten to this like a lot sooner? Yeah. And can you imagine how much history was lost? It's, it's tragic to think of. Absolutely. And, and that's, and, and I think that's the biggest tragedy, isn't it? That mm-hmm. we hear some of these stories and we're, we're sad for the loss, but there are, probably millions of stories that we don't know Mm -hmm. because they were ended somewhere where nobody knew their name, somebody Mm -hmm. where nobody took notes, somebody where it just was ignored. And that's the biggest tragedy of all is that we see the stories in this book and we know that they're the tiniest fraction of the actual stories out there. A hundred percent. I also, I don't want to go too far down the road of like, like, oh, this is, everything is terrible. I I don't want to go too far down that road (laughs) because, because another thing that you're going to get from this book is this like unbelievable resilience. And, and in my opinion, I think if you are friends with, or you have strong connections with folks in the LGBTQ plus community, often the first thing that I notice, the first thing that makes me feel safe is that sense of incredible resilience. And one thing I really love about this book is that it, it's it's a, a guide to how that resilience was built. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I was, I was a proud, you know, queer person before I read this book. <laughs> I, I've been out and proud for a while. <laughs> it's been a few years, you know, I'm not going to give away my age too much, but, but it's been many years. Um, but reading this book gave me this sense of connection that I don't know if I ever found before Wow! because I've gone to pride events and it's, it it has been a connection and it has been like, yes, we're here and we're having a great time and we're celebrating who we are. 
but not knowing our history, not knowing who we are and where we came from and what we had to struggle through, you know, what our, what our ancestors had to struggle through to get us to where we are. It's a whole nother ball game. You know, Mm -hmm. it's the pride that I feel in my community after reading this book was enhanced so much because of the resilience, because of the, you know, stubborn refusal to never give up and to never truly say like hide you know it would have been so easy for everyone to just kind of stay hidden away and to never come out and to just be locked away and be like I'm fine Uh I'm fine but we didn't do that Mm -hmm. we said nah (laughs) no we're not gonna do that we're gonna be who we are and y'all are gonna get used to it Mm-hmm. Um, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. Um, I said, I said that in the, in the recording with Nora and I said, uh, I said, um, I like to say now because of how long the fight's been going, we're here, we're queer. Are you used to it yet? As <laughs> <laughs> you should be. Like, Come on, are now. you yet? Come on y'all yes. get it together. <laughs> I love that. But, but yeah, I, I do. I think that this book definitely made me feel a connection that I didn't feel before simply because I didn't know anything about the history of, of, of my community. That's so beautiful. With that information, all of that conversation, I'm going to just transition us into our next question. Um, so now that we've read the book, how does knowing the history of the LGBTQ plus struggle for civil rights inform the work ahead or still to be done, especially for advocates? I know I talk a lot and I started the last time. So I'll let one of y'all start this time. <laughs> you are here because we want you to talk. So you okay, jump in. And I'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard because a person who isn't, who is a cisgender stri- uh, heterosexual person mm-hmm. will never understand what it's like to be part of the queer community. Mm-hmm. But to get the knowledge of the history and how hard we had to fight and the way that people have been treating us for a se- over a century now and in this country, it is, hopefully this is the goal anyway is that it will put it into perspective so that you understand that a lot of the reasons why lgbtq plus people might be uncomfortable reporting to law enforcement or going to court is because in the 20 20th century we're in the 21st century so yeah <laughs> what what is time i don't even know anymore what even is time it has um, no meaning <laughs> but um what even is it? I mean, I don't know. Um, but understanding that at that time, simply being, you know, you hear the phrase, be gay to crime, you know, and people say it and throw it out and it's like, ha it's funny, you know. But it is a crime. To, it, it was a crime to be gay. Yeah. You know what I mean? And in mm-hmm. fact, and this is something that will, that will potentially turn your stomach and definitely turn my stomach. As early as January of 2020, there were still 16 states where sodomy laws were still in place. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. As early as 2015, two men were arrested under the sodomy laws. And while it was thrown out in court, that still happened in 2015, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Gosh. But, but I think that just understanding that like, it's not the far flung history of the past. Right. Like these things are still happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, this stuff is still, I mean, 16 states 
still have sodomy laws on the books. We look at how far we've come, but there's still so far to go. You know, 16 states, that's bananas. And when you were talking about, uh, you know, is it safe for somebody to report to police or to go to court? That's everything we do as, as advocates is to try and create safe spaces. So if we are neglecting to address those issues in our own communities, we're not being good advocates. I really want to take this time to say, too, Trey, you bring up such a great point about it's really important to remember that we that history is a living document. We are writing it right now. Like we are writing part 11 of this book right now. And so what happens depends on what we do and how we respond to the history that came before us. We'll talk about it in a little bit because I'm, I'm saving it for like the next question, I think. Um, and I have a lot of things to say about that question. <laughs> Um, I have like numbers and facts and data. Like it's, <laughs> I went all in on that question. Um, but, but, you know, things are still being done to the LGBTQ plus and especially transgender individuals yeah. mm-hmm. like are being targeted so strongly. I mean, the fact of the matter is you have to understand that it's not just personal trauma. It's generational trauma. It's historical trauma. And even though we might not know some of the information, like a lot of the information that, in our, about our history, you know what I mean? Like we still know that we've been attacked and assaulted and killed mm-hmm. for simply our identity. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so when you go into court as a person who is transgender, you know, there are people who go into court and as advocates, it's such an uncomfortable conversation because sometimes we have to have that conversation with them to say, most likely they're going to misgender you. Right. I'm so glad that you bring that up because, you know, as advocates, we do all kinds of things to prepare our clients that we don't want to have to do like, Hey, you know, if you go to file your protective order and they might say this and please don't be discouraged, you know, I'm going to be right there with you and whatever, but we shouldn't have to say, Hey, they might disrespect your identity and who you are. Um, But it's about, getting the information out, creating those safe spaces. And it's not just people getting their feelings hurt. You said historical trauma earlier. And I was like, yes, I mean, this is actual violence that is still going on. Sarah, you're giggling, I think, because I'm running into the next topic. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to pretend that that was like my attempt at a transition and I'm just really good at it. But instead that, of just stepping on Sarah's on? Toes, is that what's happening right now? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, but uh, one point that I wanted to make before we moved on is another thing that I really think that having this will help people understand is that you look at any marginalized group and their history might be taught some, but it is edited and cookie cutter and whitewashed Mm -hmm. to make it so that the general public can take it and be like, oh, I feel great because that happened and then we got it together and now that's not Mm -hmm. happening anymore. It's over. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's it's like, you know, it's a person who's part of that group a lot of the time still has to prove themselves. Well, you're not like those other ones. Yes issue with the queer community is that there is no way to prove yourself unless you stop being part of the queer community to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. 
That's such a great point. And I think that that's the hardest, that's another factor to really take into account. You know, there is, it's very difficult when somebody is like, your identity is evil. And so we can't teach things in school about you Mm -hmm. because we don't want to influence our kids to be like you, Mm -hmm. to become or to become you. And so I just wanted to also make that a point because I think that's a really good thing for anyone, but advocates especially to remember when they're working with clients who are part of the queer community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's so difficult. Uh, just for me personally, I, I have adopted what I like to think of as like a strengths-based approach to my entire life. And it really drives me crazy because I have seen so many things that I would like to emulate in the LGBTQ plus community, people that I would like to be like. And it, it it is so painful to me that we would teach someone, especially a child, that that there's just no qualities about this person that you want to be like. That that doesn't make sense to me. It's it's a that is a very sore spot for me. Sorry, I know that sounds no. very trite, but like what? no, no, not at me. all. <laughs> not at all. No, you should have that as a soft spot because it, it is something that happens. And as an ally, the fact that it bothers you so much is a good thing because it means that you're looking at it and that you're paying attention to it. And that's what we need our allies to do. So like, that's, that's, that's actually fantastic. And I applaud you for it. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) Um, So I am going to move us on to the third question, just because Mm -hmm. we want to be mindful of time. And I I already suspect Trey that I could talk to you for 17 hours about this book. Um, Uh, I mean, here's the funny part about it is that we are talking about this book, but we're also talking about so many other things Yes, (laughs) that we could just talk for a couple of days. (laughs) Sure. We could, we could probably like have a conference just I was about to say that, hold a conference. (laughs) I mean, when is it? I was like, maybe we should. (laughs) I mean, maybe we should. (laughs) I just draw an event, right? (laughs) I, I can just see me now being like, hey, I have a new idea. <laughs> We're doing it. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I came up with this question and I did it selfishly because I am obsessed with this um, quote. So chapter three of this book ends with a quote that will define the struggle for more than half the book. It says, a time when the government, the law, the church, the psychiatric profession all colluded to tell homosexuals they were guilty just by being who they were. And so my question is, how do you think we still see this collusion playing out today? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Conference panel one. (laughs) (laughs) So let me just, let me just run down some of these numbers. The first number I want to talk about is how many anti-LGBTQ plus bills passed in the year 2021. Mm -hmm. And that's 17. That is a record high, beating out the worst year for LGBTQ plus individuals in 2015, which was 15. I was like, this is about to make me mad. I just know it. (laughs) Oh, it's going to make you real mad. (laughs) So... Anti-trans sports fans in Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi, Montana, and our state, West Virginia, four religious refusal bills, including in Arkansas, Montana, and South Dakota, two anti-LGBTQ plus education bills 
in Tennessee and Montana, one anti-trans medical care bill, one uh, sham hate crimes bill, one anti-all comers bill, and one anti-trans birth certificate bill. So those are the 17 that actually passed in our country. In total, how many do you think were actually put forward like into the running? I mean, oh gosh, I don't even want to guess because it's going to be infuriating. <laughs> Just take a wild one. A hundred? Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, the, if 17 passed, I'm going to guess a hundred. Is that your guess too, Sarah? Sure. More than 200 <gasps> anti-LGBTQ plus bills were put forward this year. Oh my God. <laughs> year. Including 35 bills that would prohibit transgender youth from being able to access best practice, age-appropriate gender-affirming medical care. 69 that would prohibit transgender youth and in some cases, college students from participating in sports consistent with their gender identity. 43, that it would allow people to assert a religious belief as justification for failing to abide by the law. And at least 15, that would prohibit transgender people from having access to restrooms or locker rooms consistent with their gender identity. So that's fun. <laughs> so, so people are in fact colluding. Yeah, yeah this is a collusion. collusion. <laughs> yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible in very bad way yeah how many anti-lgbtq plus bills were put forward and how many passed like i said it is on record that i could find the worst year for anti-lgbtq plus bills to be passed mm. like by like by two bills <laughs> so it's oh oh and here's some more Here's some more numbers oh for you, just to throw them out there. In 27 states still, there are no protections for LGBTQ plus people for yeah. housing yeah. or for employment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really want us to also talk about um, something that is very interesting to me has always been this complicated, muddy relationship between LGBTQ plus folks and psychiatry and psychology, especially because, you know, psychology um, purports itself to be a science, right? So there is something so insidious to me about um, the way that they have treated LGBTQ plus folks in the past. I, I am fascinated by this relationship. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely, um, it's so interesting because it, I mean, homosexuality was in the DSM. Yes. A long time. <laughs> like, I don't remember the exact amount of years, but it was in there for a long time as a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. And whatever year you're thinking of, it's a lot more recent than you realize. Oh, like, yeah. it's, Absolutely. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting about this idea that like, there is one thing that really makes this a collusion to me, right? Is the idea that like, we're talking about the government, the law, um, the church, and the psychiatric profession, which is interesting to me because in some ways it is a reflection. It is a direct reflection of thing, something like the power and control wheel that we use as advocates. Like 
they the reason that it's a collusion is because these are the entities that can work together to maintain power and control over a group of people on a societal level. And I just think this is a really great example of how you can really clearly see that the work that we do for um, for anti-oppression is clearly reflective of the work that we do on a day to day level with working with um, abusive partners. It's so interesting because it really has been such a crazy journey for us to be respected, not just by psychiatrists and things like that, but also in healthcare in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as early as 2017, they, they were trying to roll back protections against discrimination against transgender people in, in healthcare. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's absolutely insane that people who are in a profession where you're supposed to be helping people to survive or helping people to have better mental health, mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. still like, oh, these people aren't worth it. I think this is a really good time to bring up conversion therapy <laughs> because <laughs> um, I was in a, in a training a while back, um, actually co-presenting this training. And, and our presenter that was with us had a slide and it just said, hey, conversion therapy kills people. And it was so so profound and so direct that I had never thought about that before. Like, why are we allowing this practice to masquerade as helpful in our society when it harms people? It's, it's exactly what you're talking about. Props to Charleston. They, you know, they just passed the city ordinance banning conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Go Charleston. Yes. Proud of Charleston. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> no, no, I love it. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, in my head, I'm like, so, okay, come on, Huntington. Like, let's go. <laughs> I mean, literally just like the rest of the state. Yes. Country, All of us. World. When I was growing up, I legitimately thought that I was broken because of the fact that I grew up. And this is nothing negative about Christianity as a whole, but where I grew up and how I was raised, I was raised very devout and very much believing that LGBTQ plus people were sinners and Mm. to like stop it. So I would go to bed every night in tears, praying to God, please fix me. When I would go or when I went to college, I sat down in front of a therapist and she was the first person I ever told. And I said, or she asked me are you gay and I said I don't know and she said well are you attracted to men and I said oh unfortunately no I'm kidding (laughs) no um (laughs) no I said I said yes I am and she said okay and (laughs) and I was like and I need you to fix me oh gosh and she looked at me really hard and was like Huh? <laughs> and it was like, I need you to fix me. Like, I can be fixed. And she was like, there's nothing to fix about you. What are you talking about, you idiot? <laughs> she didn't say that part, but like, I wish she would. It, it was implied. <laughs> it was implied. Um, but, and, and that's all it took. Literally mm-hmm. the moment she said, there's nothing to fix about you. Like, you're fine. I was like, you know what? She's right. I'm great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But I, I talk about that because that is the kind of mentality that people who get sent to conversion therapy are taught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only difference is that not only are they taught that, they are also forced to do physical things mm-hmm. to continue to force them to feel that way. Mm-hmm. And it does so negatively affect your mental health. I still, to this day, have issues with clinical depression because it formed in my formative years. Mm-hmm. And now it's just probably something I'm going to have to deal with for my entire life. And there's definitely a lot of trauma. I mean, I go into a church and there's people in the church and I'm immediately like having a panic attack yeah. because I'm like, Oh God. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's definitely a lot of trauma that comes from that. And, and that's the type of belief that people who are going to conversion therapy are forced to believe. Mm-hmm. And it is incredibly harmful. And, and, you know, it's like, and, and, and the beliefs that people who are running the conversion therapy have, you know, where they can just force heterosexual behaviors on people who don't identify as heterosexual and it's going to fix them is, is seen as fine. I mean, I had family members who literally were talking to each other about potentially hiring a female prostitute to come force herself on me so that I would quote unquote, know what it was like. And thankfully they never did it and they realized, okay, maybe that's not something that we should do. Mm-hmm. But the fact that that thought crossed their mind, like the, in the minds of people who want you to change who you are and to not be this identity, sexual assault is better. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> than, like, so that's where conversion therapy does cause this harm. Cause that's, cause it's not the conversion therapy itself. Although that, I mean, the, it is the conversion therapy itself, but it's the mindset that leads to conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. Also, examples it, of it. not, and again, not to make light of this, but it's also mind boggling to me that this is the exact same tactic that you hear very conservative straight people um, accuse LGBTQ plus folks of like, oh, your gay agenda, you're going to push your sexuality on us. Like, no, you doing that. <laughs> yeah. 100%. <laughs> you pushed it on me the entire time that I was growing up as a teenager. Yeah. Like, I don't need you to <laughs> try to tell me that. What? I'm- <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Trey, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I do want to say, obviously, our experience is not the same, but I do relate to that so much. I know that um, I've shared with you that I also came from a very um, conservative Christian background. And again, this is not an indictment of Christianity in any way. I have, I'm very close to many Christians in my life, Same, but, but we cannot deny that there has been harm done. It it is, it is a fact. Yeah. And I, and I think that there was a, a brief article that I shared on Facebook a while ago. And I just recently, literally yesterday looked at it and it was kind of discussing that mindset of like, well, I can accept you, but I'm still going to disagree with you and I'm not going to be okay with who you are. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I forget. Oh gosh. I wish I would have looked it up before I got on the podcast because now I don't have the information that I need. Um, But basically the person who was talking was saying how that's not possible. It's not possible for you to say, I love you and I, and I care about you and I accept you, but also like, I think you're sinning and I think you're going to go, 
you know, I think mm-hmm. you're going to go to hell when you die. And I, and mm-hmm. I don't think that you should have rights. Yeah. That, that's not possible. It's mm-hmm. either you're denying me as a person or you're embracing all of who I am. Mm-hmm. There yeah. is no in between. And it's, and, and some people might think that that's an extreme mindset to have, but it's not either you're denying me as a person and rights that I should have to make my life be a good life or you embrace me entirely one or the other. As anti-violence advocates, I don't think that's a radical mindset, you know, because we know that that's how abuse works is denying someone's rights, denying someone's identity, covering that up, controlling somebody. This is all the same kind of oppression. Absolutely. Again, just for the sake of time, I'm going to move us on to the next question. Um, So the next question is one that I um, kind of created like a little bit of an outline for because it's something that I was really fascinated by as I read throughout the entirety of the book. So um, what kind of strategies do you see LGBTQ plus folks using to advance civil rights throughout history? And I want to pull some examples that were really important to me. I think initially you really see people like creating safe spaces in small communities like it was like a small grassroots start. Um, my personal new hero, favorite human, Frank Kameny, use, it, use of the phrase, the homosexual American citizen. I just want to take a minute to talk about this. I think that this is so effective and so strategic because it requires people to acknowledge citizenship. And, and I, every time I would read that, I would think, man, that's smart. That is so smart to um, be constantly reminding people, hey, I'm a citizen here. I'm a human being. And and it's a small thing, but I think it's a great strategy. And then, of course, you have yeah. like, I'm so sorry, Trey. No, I was just going to say it absolutely is. And, and, you know, I mean, up until that point, it was literally just, you know, the mindset was, and that we were called homophile at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the mindset was that we were deviants, that we had something wrong with us in the head. And so for him to say the homosexual American citizen, it made it sound so just normalized and humanized mm-hmm. that it was almost impossible for people to not listen. So I, I think that is a really good point. And also Frank Kamenis. Yay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's who I'm standing. Anyways. For this <laughs> <laughs> we all um, get to pick someone. Yeah, just, I'm, I'm so glad you, you brought that quote up, Sarah, just this idea that you can other people, you know, just making them, pushing them to the sides. And what we need to do is, is reiterate the homosexual American citizen. It's like when RuPaul put out, I, I'm an American after this 2016 uh, election. And it's just such a strong statement like hey we're all american here we're we all have the same rights and deserve the same rights i'm gonna say something that's gonna sound really silly but you're just gonna have to bear with me i don't get silly very often but here it is here's my moment of the day um there is something about frank committee that reminds me of the spirit of the musical hamilton so when there's that whole piece where it's like rise up It's so hard when you have been abused or when you're othered, it is impossible to like 
have the foresight, have the ability to, to lift your head out of that. I, I think that's what makes him kind of a miracle is that he had the ability to be constantly bombarded with these messages of who he is and being told who he was. And he was able to like rise up out of that and say like, no, I'm, I'm going to reframe that. I'm not going to allow you to define who I am. If you think about how hard that is to do, that is, to me, it's just a miracle. So that's my, that's my excitement about Frank Committee for the podcast. I, I like that that's you being silly, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, I was like, okay, what's she going to do? Is she gonna some weird noises? Is she going to like, <laughs> like go into no. like an impression of somebody? Like, I would never. It? <laughs> it's just a brilliant and she's observation. Like, I'm being like so silly right now. Like I just really like how he rises from the ashes like a phoenix and manages to change the history, the course of history. And it's like I'm so silly. <laughs> no, it's just a brilliant observation about a award-winning musical. I love it. I love but it. But seriously, can we get a hold of Lynn Manuel and have him start writing a musical about? <laughs> about just this just this yes. this, this book like a musical about this book please thank you Lynn Manuel mm-hmm. get into it <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the book like towards the end of the book and moving through history of course you begin to see like um and I I think this is worth talking about too it's just interesting um like you you start seeing people moving into the protest and riot movements right which are also extremely valid important tools for changing history but also maybe like in conflict with the people that came before them. It's interesting to me how generations change their tactics, meet resistance with the generation before, but push the needle. Yeah. Um, And then of course there is that whole section that's like moving from protesting to swaying the vote, like a real focus on, okay, we have political power now. I wanted to touch briefly on that generational conflict that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I have been seeing a lot of it especially recently like in the Mm -hmm. past couple of years between older members of the queer community and younger members of the queer community there's definitely seems to be conflict and i think there's conflict in every generational like yeah gap but because there is such a changing in terminology and because has identities are really being better defined now and more accepted and more like people are like, no, this is my identity. And and it it's not as, it, it almost doesn't seem as rigid as it used to be to be part of our community, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many more identities recognized now, not that they're new because they've been around. <laughs> they just might not have had the terminology present to fully define them. And this terminology is probably going to continue to evolve and we have to evolve with it. And I think that there's definitely a lot of terms that are now seen as negative and as uncomfortable and even offensive that people are still using um, at times and it can definitely cause conflict. And I remember I was having a conversation with somebody who was an older individual in the LGBTQ plus community and they said, I just have an issue with the younger LGBTQ plus community because they don't know their history. They don't Mm. understand any of this. Mm. And I proceeded to follow the question up with, is it that they don't know their history or that they have never been given access, that they've never been taught, Mm -hmm. that they've never been allowed to have that information. Like a lot of the older generation lived some of the stuff in this book. 
They lived through mm-hmm. the AIDS crisis. They mm-hmm. lived through a lot of this stuff and saw it with their own eyes, experienced the, you know, the government being completely against even mentioning the AIDS crisis mm-hmm. and blaming, blaming the queer community for it and demonizing them and, and, and scapegoating them the whole time. So they might not understand that while the younger generation hasn't seen those things, they are now seeing things that are happening today. Mm-hmm. Like there are going to be people in 40 years from now who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and however old we are at that point who are going to remember this year and the year in the the subsequent years where attacks against transgender individuals in our government were so rampant and we're going to remember that Mm -hmm. yeah um i'm so glad that you brought this up i guess we're doing now like day two of the conference addressing generational conflict um (laughs) so I'm, I, I really am so glad that you brought this up because one thing that I really struggle with, Trey, is that I know that one of my flaws is that I have a real, like, real value system of, like, respect your elders, right? Like, I don't, I, it, it's part of being raised in the church, I think. I don't know. <laughs> but I can get really frustrated when I hear like a younger generation saying things like, well, you know, like they weren't bold enough or they didn't do things like in a, in a, in as bold a way as they should have. Or um, when I, I sometimes hear like older folks being very cautious or concerned about like the level of rioting that we see and, and condemning it in ways. And I don't agree with that, but I also just, I have a lot of understanding for the position that they're in as well, because I think it's really easy to forget or to become removed from the level of danger that these people have experienced. And so they're making that judgment based on the level of danger that they lived. And not that it's not just as dangerous. I, I, I don't think that, but I do think that there is a different cultural attitude. And then the other thing that I want to say about that, that I, I really struggle with, and, and I can relate this to um, myself as a feminist. I sometimes get very frustrated with, like younger generations of feminism uh, or or feminists. And I know that there is the same type of generational conflict happening. And one of the things that I think about a lot is that like the reason that I get very touchy about my feminism is because it's important to me. It's my identity. I did the work and I'm very proud of the work that I did. I mean, not that I'm some great feminist, but like, you know, it was important to me at the time. And I think that we have to remember that when you're dealing or thinking about identity politics in this way, the people that you're talking to, every single one of them have an invested, valued interest in the work that they've done. And they want that to be valued, like they want that value to be reflected in the way that it's talked about. Absolutely. And I think, and I think that's really what the key is we have this generational conflict because nobody is talking to each other. I agree. If we were able to have a situation where the younger generation of the queer community was able to sit down and listen to some of the stories, like to have a conversation with older members of our community while they talked about the AIDS crisis and that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. many friends they had to watch die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how many people they heard about dying you know, I feel like it would really shift 
But then I also think that some people in the older generation, and obviously I'm talking about some people, this isn't mm-hmm. talking about the entire older generation of the queer community as if it's all the same mindset, because it's not. Um, just like the younger generation is all the same mindset. But I think that some people in the older generation think that people in the younger generation just have it so easy now that they don't have to worry about these things mm-hmm. when that's not accurate at all either. So uh, exactly. I, th- I think it's 100% that dialogue just needs to happen instead of mm-hmm. being like, ugh, them. They don't, <laughs> they don't understand their history or, ugh, them. They're so over the hill. Like we need to start having those dialogues intergenerationally mm-hmm. so that we can come to this understanding that we're all in the same community mm-hmm. just like you like you're a woman and you're a f- like like you're in that category with all other women mm-hmm. and having that conversation with the younger generation and the older generation being able to because i'm sure like like there are probably people who are in the generation above like like before you who probably look at you the same way that you're looking at some of the younger feminists right now who are kind of like, whatever. You know? And I, I know that I'm the same way. Cause I'm like, we're, we're kind of at that age where we're right in the middle almost. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing the younger generation and the older generation. Isn't it funny too, how easy it is to other people, how our human nature inclines us to other, even the people that are in the same groups that we are in. Yep. It, it's fascinating. It's, it is a human drive that we is have to constantly really? fight. But you used a phrase, Trey, that I think is the key to all of this. Like you said, having conversations, but the the idea of having access to that history, you know, if somebody hasn't lived, they they weren't losing their friends during the AIDS crisis. And, you know, President Reagan literally wouldn't even say the words until somebody he personally knew had it. Um, And I think that this is a place where art can come in and and do some amazing things too. Like, Oh yeah. I just finished watching pose and I won't shut up about it. (laughs) It's one of the best shows that's ever been made. And trust me, I watch a lot of TV, like way too much TV, but pose is so good y'all. But there, there was a scene uh, where they are taking ashes and dumping them on, um, the governor on the lawn of the governor's mansion, I believe in New York. And they had actual footage and I was Googling like this actually happened. Mm-hmm. Like this actually happened. Mm-hmm. That's how far people had to go mm-hmm. in protest to get attention. They're like our entire community is dying and everybody wants to look the other way. So like, I'm hoping that we can have these conversations, open up these dialogues, be able to view these these things um, so that younger generations can get a little bit of understanding about what it was like. I really, I know that she talks about Lillian Faderman talks about that specific incident in the book. And there Mm -hmm. is a term I'm I'm trying to remember the term, but there is a term for that specific type of protest that, that they adopt and use. Um, I'm going to try to look it up, but please, please keep talking. (laughs) Um, I guess We'll wrap up this podcast by asking something pretty simple, which is um, just like to sum it up, what is something that you learned from this book that really surprised you? I think, honestly, how little I knew. Mm. Like how much 
there was to this history that I was never taught that I was never able to like, I knew about Stonewall, but I didn't know anything, any details, you know, I knew about Stonewall enough to know that Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were the ones that kind of were the ones like the spearheaded the charge, but mm -hmm. I didn't know that Stormy and I cannot pronounce her last name. So I'm not <laughs> even going to try, um, but she was a butch lesbian of color. And she was the one that incited the riots that started that night. You know, she got clubbed in the head by a police officer and, and she looked up at everyone and was like, why aren't you all doing anything? Yeah. And that's what kind of caused the rioting to start because people were so tired of trying to go somewhere where they were safe. And it's kind of like what you brought up, um, creating safe spaces in small communities. For people who were queer in those days, the only safe spaces were clubs and bars for them mm -hmm. to go to and interact with their fellow queer people. And those were the places that police actively raided regularly. And so, or even sent, like they would send an undercover cop in who was young and attractive and they would dress him up so that he looked even more attractive. And then he would flirt with somebody. And then when that person flirted back, then they would take that person out and then there would be the paddy wagon waiting for him. So it was a genuine assault on the sa only safe spaces for our community to have. And so it's just, it's so important to understand that history because there are people who are, you know, calling for uh, no, no police at pride. You know, that's something that I've seen the past couple of years, no police at pride. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, I like I I, I was like, well, what is, what is the history behind this? And after reading this book, I was able to understand why we as queer people might have a discomfort and a, a, an opposition to law enforcement because they were the people and the tool because they were also being used as a tool by the government to harass us and hunt us. Um, so it's just being able to understand all that information really. And I'm going to let y'all know this right now. I talked a lot about the positive feelings I had about this book, but as a queer person, I experienced generational trauma reading this mm -hmm. book. I experienced historical trauma reading this book. Mm -hmm. And now I have that and I don't see it as a negative. Like I don't want to perceive that as a negative because I feel like I have taken these stories, these souls of my, of my ancestors in this community and I've taken them into myself, just like everybody who learns this history has. And part of that is taking in their trauma, but I've also taken in their strength and their resilience. And I feel so much stronger because of it. Mm -hmm. And I feel ready to go out and like tackle the world. So it is something that I think like I said, I think the most surprising thing for me was just how much I didn't know and how much had been, honestly, how much had been kept from me. Because that's what mm. it is. I mean, not to throw any more numbers out because I know we're running out of time, but there are multiple states. There are, let me tell you right now. <laughs> there are, oh gosh, I totally lost the number. But there are multiple states in our country that actually prohibit the teaching of anything related to LGBTQ mm -hmm. plus people mm -hmm. like, or not, not just saying like, Oh no, it's not part of our curriculum. They're saying you're not allowed to teach that. So 
our history isn't just not known to us. It's being actively kept from us. It's being actively hidden from us. So I think that's another reason why this book and books like it are so important. I want to say that this book, the surprising thing for me about this book is that every, it felt like every chapter was a reminder for me to ask why. And sometimes in my day-to-day, I forget to ask why. Um, But exactly like what you were saying, Trey, like, why, why might people feel this way right now? Oh, it turns out there's a very well-documented, like, course of events that tell me why that somebody might feel this way right now. (laughs) So, so I think that's what I learned the most from the book. For me, this book, I know I said it before, but just the human stories, just getting, you know, she does a really good job of describing, hey, hey, this is who this person was. This is what their experience was like. Just the everyday, you know, so much of, of this history has been erased, but to really get into what it was like and the injustices, just so much time and energy and resources that our government put into actively hunting its own citizens, oh. entrapping them, interrogating them, and then firing them from, you know, government jobs. It just, it, I guess it's not surprising, but the extent um, to, to which that existed. Uh, but I love this book. <laughs> It's great. So we have talked for a long time about this book and I have enjoyed every moment of it. I could go on for another hour and a half. I'm sure. Um, Trey, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, your insight and your, and just sharing your personal story. I can't, I can't thank you enough for that. Yes. Um, Thank you so much for having me. I really, um, I love talking. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) And I love talking about, the queer community. I don't know if I've mentioned this enough, but you know, I'm just going to throw it out there again. Um, I love, and I'm so proud to be part of this community. Um, so I love talking about it and I love talking about what we've gone through and what we've had to do to get to where we are and what we have to continue to do. So, um, so yeah, I really appreciate the invitation and, um, anytime you want me to come back, like, let me know. Please do. (laughs) And, you know, thank you so much for being here, but also just thank you for the work that you do, Trey. Absolutely. You, you are doing great work. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we let you go on this podcast, I do have a couple of things to mention. Um, if you like this discussion, if you'd like to talk, please, please, please come um, to our virtual community book discussion of this same book, The Gay Revolution. Um, it will be August the 30th at 6.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite. You can find that on our Facebook or on our website. Um, We love to talk with our community about um, what we're doing. So please join that. You can listen to this podcast and have a lot of of stuff to bring to the table, or you can just come and hang out and talk with us in real time. Also, don't forget to join our book club. You can do that on our um, Facebook or our website, which is www.branchesdvs.org. We are gearing up for September's book, which will be Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty. And um, we're going to dive into some discussion about domestic violence and the and its dynamics. So we're looking forward to that. Join us for that. And um, guys, please, please, please go out and root for each other. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this 
very special episode of Root for Each Other. We are Branches Domestic Violence Shelter, and we've been serving the communities of Cabell, Wayne, Lincoln, Mason, and Putnam counties for 41 years. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the Branches Hotline 24-7 at 304-529-2382. And hey, Sarah, guess what? What? Branches is proud to serve all. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Thanks, everybody. Go out and root for each other.